You're listening to The Upland Rookie, a podcast presented by Upland Brits, B Pro Kennels, Final Rise, and a Nook Shook Professional Dog Food. And you're listening to episode 75 with special guest Jared Wickland of Pheasants Forever. We dive into Habitat Talk and, of course, the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Big thanks to our title sponsor, B Pro Kennels. B Pro Kennels is a small business creating ultra high quality and custom dog boxes for the gun dog owner like you and I. No matter how big your string of dogs, B Pro Kennels will make sure you have a box that fits your needs for you and your gun dogs. With an innovative storage design and built in solar panel and battery bank for quick access to charging accessories like dog collars, lights, fans, you name it. This is a dog box unlike anything you've seen before. Check them out at bprokennels.com. Oh, and they're made right here in the USA. This podcast is also presented to you by Final Rise. All good things start with a solid foundation. At Final Rise, all three of their premium Upland vests are built around the foundational waist belt to provide you all-day comfort and endless customization. With a secure waist belt and thin, high-quality shoulder harness, this is the vest you can load down with birds and walk all day in. Final Rise is creating high-functioning Upland gear that delivers comfort, balance, and a lifetime of memories. Check them out at finalrise.com. And this podcast is sponsored by Trinity Bretons, home of the Epignol Breton, also known as the French Brittany. All Trinity Breton dogs are from champion bloodlines that are field-tested and family-approved. For over 33 years, Trinity Bretons has worked to offer you the best-bred Epignol Breton in the country. Trinity offers puppies, the Trinity Upland Academy with George Hickox, started dogs, stud services, and a whole lot more. Check them out at trinitybertons.com. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Upland Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Will Larson, and I'm so glad to be back with you guys for another episode today. Uh, I have Jared Wicklin on the podcast from Pheasants Forever, and uh, we take a, a pretty in-depth look um, and, and conversation around habitat. Uh, talk about winter food source for upland birds, and uh, haven't haven't done something like this I guess this habitat focus before. And so this was actually a really, uh, really fun conversation. And I definitely walked away um, learning some things I, I didn't know before, uh, kind of solidifying uh, some topics and, and questions I had um, on habitat, um, CRP, different programs that are out there, corners for conservation, some, some really cool things that are out there and some of the work that PF and QF are doing uh, for habitat around the country. So, um, which also leads me into want to update you guys on, um, not update you guys on, you guys probably know because you're on social media probably, and you've heard and you've seen that um, very shortly is coming up uh, the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Uh, It's February 18th, I believe. See if my calendar opens quickly. Yes, uh, 17th through 19th of February, 2023. And so that, uh, that event I've heard, um, has, has been referred to kind of as the Super Bowl of the uplands. Um, it's an event where you are going to get to uh, experience, um, and meet a bunch of other upland uh, hunters, uh, bird dog lovers who are just as passionate as you uh, about the uplands and hunting upland birds in the outdoors, uh, the care about conservation. And so, um, this event you'll hear in the, in the episode, I, I won't steal all Jared's thunder, but 
I mean, some of the unique things that they have, um, different speakers, different stages, um, and topics of conversation, lectures, discussions, and uh, around a ton of different cool topics. They have a, a bird dog trauma uh, talk. They have uh, a conservation stage. We're talking all about conservation and um, just some really, really unique things uh, with this event. So make sure um, you guys um, try, to, try to get up there if you can. Um, at the end of the episode, it's kind of something pretty cool. At the end of this episode, make sure you listen all the way through. Um, Jared has kind of a special promo for um, listeners of this podcast. If you guys want to go, he's going to give you his email. Uh, shoot him an email. Tell him you heard him on the Upland Rookie podcast. And uh, he's going to get you I'm pretty... I'll have to listen back on what he said. It's either free tickets or nearly free tickets to the event. So um, if you're thinking about going... Listen to the end of the episode, um, get Jared's email, shoot him an email, tell him, tell him you heard him on my podcast, and uh, he'll get you hooked up with some tickets to uh, to the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, which is pretty awesome. So thank you, uh, Pheasants Forever, for doing that for listeners of the show. I think that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, if you've never attended or uh, would like to get up there and just you know haven't pulled the trigger yet, this might be your time. Get ready, because you, you might be going. Um, be sure when you're when you're there, check out. We got uh, the Final Rise booth as well as the B Pro Kennels booth. Um, so check those guys out. Go say hi to Ben uh, Proctor from B Pro and Matt Davis from Final Rise. Um, just texting with uh, both of them actually t- t- uh, today. Uh, texting with Matt Davis this morning on a couple things and um, got some. Yeah, just just stay tuned for some final rise uh, news coming out here. Um, Ben's or uh, Matt is killing it over there, so make sure to go say hi to him at the final rise booth, and then uh, jump on over to B Pro. Take a look. Ben's gonna have uh, a couple boxes uh, there. Uh, I think I'll have a three hole and a two hole there for you guys to see in person. And we had uh, one of the early prototypes uh, at the event last year, and so you'll get to. Um, Hopefully my DMs go down. Honestly, I get so many, so many DMs, people messaging me about the box and questions on it and that. And so I, I love that. Keep them coming. But um, if you want to see one in person, make sure you stop by the B Pro booth and um, check one of those things out in person. Uh, they're pretty freaking sweet. Um, and then I was also going to say with B Pro Kennels, guys, Ben's um, massive giveaway is live. It is live and ready to accept entries. So he's got a really sweet giveaway. Um, check out his website and, and Instagram for all the kind of details. Um, I will probably forget all the details. He's got two different um, giveaways. One's a free um, a free box from B Pro Kennels. It's a free two-hole box. And then the other giveaway is a, a fully paid for two-day hunt in South Dakota as well as a, a Wicked Wing uh, edition uh uh, Browning shotgun and it is so sick looking. Uh, I think it's a Maxis two. I believe it is. Uh, don't quote me on that, but so check out B pro kennels. They have a huge, huge giveaway right now. I think all you have to do is, um, again, I'm not going to quote the details, go to his website, read the details for yourself on how to enter. Cause I don't want to butcher it. So, um, be sure to say hi to those guys and, um, should be fun. Um, you're probably wondering, you're probably wondering, am I going to be at pheasant fest and quail classic <laughs> um as of right now as of today there's probably a less than one percent chance that i will go um i had um it's pretty sure lined up i was going to attend um kind of worked out well my um i have a commitment with my son's hockey team that weekend um that kind of came up a month ago or maybe more ago and um just felt it was important to be at that um 
which I'm, I don't know. There, again, there's a less than 1% chance I might change my mind um, and try to be at <laughs> Pheasant Fest, but we'll see. Um, obviously, family is super important to me, my kids, my wife, and uh, they, they will always come first for me for sure. But, um, you know, being at an event like this, I've never got to attend it. So I'm holding out hope. Maybe, um, I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind. I'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, I'll surprise you if I end up going, but if I do, I'd love to say hi to a lot of you guys and um, yeah, meet, meet a lot of a lot of you who I've only either talked to online or maybe you've listened to the podcast. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens. I'll let you know what ends up uh, transpiring from here. So, um, anyways, um, just a reminder. Um, uh, just have been solidifying a couple giveaways happening over at patreon.com. Um, so stay tuned for, uh, some giveaway updates. I have two big giveaways, um, happening, uh, over the next month or so. Um, so if you're not signed up on Patreon, get signed up for little as five bucks a month. Um, it's really going to help support the show and then also get you into some really sweet giveaways. Uh, I got some giveaways with Gunner, um, final rise, some other cool things coming down the pipe. So make sure you guys are signed up on uh, over there and i think that's everything yeah i think it's everything i hope um i know we're early february right now i hope everyone is um again most of you i think uh, i forget if arizona is open still it might be open for a little bit longer but uh, i know some of the chucker hunters are out there crushing it still making us all jealous um so if you're chasing chucker kudos to you we're all we're all envious i uh, hope you guys finish out your season well and uh make some make some good memories along the way there so late season hunting is some of the best hunting less people out there i feel some great hunting out there still and um yeah there's some there's some good memories around late season hunting so everyone who's out chasing birds still keep crushing it and uh hey we're gonna dive into the episode right now and uh guys make sure to uh leave a rating and review on apple Podcasts if you haven't already thanks so much wild fan hockey fan yeah okay yeah, they they won in overtime last night, which is great. I think they were one, they were one point out of the wild card spot. Okay. Um, that was a, that was a nasty a game against go, uh, the Flyers. That was yeah, they had the the in the first period there was a span of fifteen seconds yeah. there. Um, they had three three fights in a row. Golly, <laughs> they were <laughs> kind of laying it down. They were just going yeah. at it, man. Which is weird. It's like they don't play each other that often either. It's like once or twice a year, maybe. No. Which is kind no, of funny. yeah, it was. Uh, I was I was listening listening to it uh, while at the Y last night, kind of working on the yeah. new year, new me type of deal. Yeah, yeah there you, know. you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, you're uh, 27 days in, so keep it up. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I haven't let down. I haven't let down yeah. yet. Kind of trying to get trying to get back into like cross country skiing a little oh, nice. bit too. Okay. It's it's a fun outdoor. I don't like to run. I'm, I'm just same. I'm not. I hate running. <laughs> obviously not built for that i can walk for days yeah. but uh cross-country skiing is something we're kind of getting the kids into oh, and nice. they've got uh yeah they've got a second um they've got a second uh practice tomorrow okay. um second time ever doing oh, it cool. but it's supposed to be like negative 10 oh here. gosh <laughs> is that pretty is we'll that pretty normal continue. like like below zero for you guys is that just like kind of a normal thing this time of year 
I mean, you can't complain about it living in Minnesota yeah. because it always happens. Sure. Like we get the polar vortexes and stuff, but we actually just came off of, I heard the other day we had like one of the warmest winters uh, on record for January oh, wow. uh, in, in Minnesota, which would actually, which actually bodes well with the amount of snow and other stuff we've had sure. for, for the birds and other wildlife, okay. which is, which is good. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. I, I grew up in Chicago. So I mean, not, not quite Minnesota cold, but um, definitely gotcha. the long prolonged winters and, you know snowstorms and all that so colorado's been a little 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 nicer actually we get a lot of snow but it it usually doesn't stay around too long so it'll stay for a couple days sun comes out melts it all so it's been pretty what's the temp in denver right now i mean today we're at 36 today oh nice it's not but we still got yeah yeah, sun's out snow starting to (laughs) starting to melt a little bit in the driveway so it's 28 here with a 30 mile an hour wind out of the south. That's going to switch to the northwest by the end of the oh, day. Gosh. So it's going to it's going to be pretty cool. Good times, man. Good times. <laughs> um, I know we'll get into this in the interview and stuff. But you do you have bird dogs? I don't think I know that. I do. Okay. I do. I've got a uh, I've got a four year old uh, Labrador Retriever named Luna, and I've got an 11 year old just turned 11 um, English Pointer Jackson. Oh, nice. You went to you went to English Pointer route. Nice. Yeah, actually, we ended up getting them from one of my coworkers in Iowa, Bryce Morris with Morris Kennels, okay. and um, my my dad first got them, and they moved down to Arizona, and he had some health issues and those types of things, sure. so it came up like, hey, would would you guys mind taking Jackson sort of on, under your wing? Mm-hmm. And we've had them for a long time now, and um, I'm I'm not the world's best dog trainer, I'll be <laughs> the first to tell you that, but he's got a lot of natural ability That's and. Cool. Um, yeah, I've shot a lot of birds over him. Had some had some fun uh, instances here this this last uh, this last season. Yeah. I'm pretty much done upland hunting for the year sure. now. But a couple of weeks ago in Montana, we had some. Oh, good. Fun I was going to ask if you got out west at all, but that's awesome. Yeah, very cool, man. Well, we'll kind of uh, we'll kind of jump in here. Um, so I know I know you got uh, some cold weather up there in Minnesota, which is it was a good time. Um, but Jared, why don't you, uh, start us off, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit, uh, of who you are, give us an overview and then put us on the map. Where, where are you talking to us from? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, my title right now is public relations manager for Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. So I obviously do a lot of podcasts and that type of thing, but work work on earned media, uh, do advertising for Pheasant Fest. And in general, I answer a lot of uh, member and, and hunter questions. Um, anything from, hey, can you help me? What happened What happened to my membership? You know, I was supposed to get a premium in the mail to, hey, do you have any suggestions on where to go in, you know, this specific state? And that's part of my role too is, Helping people find success, I think. I try not to try not to hotspot too much because sure. I know that's a major major thing well, for. That's a for well, people hunters, actually reach out and, and ask Pheasants Forever where to hunt. All the time. Really? Yeah, it's it's weekly. Wow. And I've got so many points. You know, it's like you can send them in a general direction. Like I don't think you know, like Aberdeen, South Dakota. Sure. Like that's not a it's not a, it's not a secret. Yeah. No, it's not a secret to anybody or Southwest Minnesota. Right. Um, this past season, I had uh, a couple guys from Nebraska who got my number from a former coworker, and they called and said, "Hey, we're we're coming up to rough grouse hunt for the first time." That's that's what I grew up on okay. was rough grouse hunting, and they're like, "I heard you're the man to put us in the right direction." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I'll I'll do I'll do what I can." It really depends on conditions yeah. and dogs and who's hunting and all those types of things. But you got a couple million acres to choose from, so you know, go and have a ball. And they had a hard time the the first day. They said we didn't see a single bird, and I go, "Well." 
the spots I sent you, I was literally up there two weeks ago and they were all over the yeah, place, yeah. all over the road, you know, <laughs> in the woods. And then, uh, it was raining that day though, which, which was kind of the, the, the big factor there. But the next day they ended up, you know, filling out on rough grouse and they hunted pheasant on the way oh, up nice. and kind of, uh, showed them to some of the spots that, that pheasants forever is, is helped with, yeah. especially in Southwest Minnesota. So yeah. Um, all that and more. I, I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. Um, for people that don't know where it is, it's it's right sort of at the tip of Lake Lake Superior, um, kind of going up the North Shore. And as far as uh, being a sportsman goes, um, really blessed to grow up in a town like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's Outside Magazine or something else has listed them as one of the you know top outdoor destination or do- top outdoor cities in the country. I think multiple times now. And it really shows, you know, everything they're doing up there from um, the, the, the biking trails in town to the bird hunting, um, the deer hunting can be really fantastic up there. They actually have a, um, they have a, have a citywide bow hunt. Actually, there's some monster deer that oh, come wow. out of Duluth um, to what the DNR is doing with legacy funds here and working with, um, you know, the city of Duluth to basically transform the, the St. Louis river estuary, I guess, if you want to call it. Um, there's just so many cool things going on up in that neck of the woods. And I was just fortunate and blessed to grow up there. Yeah. Um, right. Literally right. Up, I was three blocks from the lake. That's crazy. You know? that, so I'm guessing you did a lot of fishing outdoor, just outdoor everything. Yep. Yep. I did less fishing. I actually did less fishing on Lake Superior. I get that question really? all the okay. time and people are like, man, you must've hammered Lake Superior. You know? And, and uh, to be honest, if you don't have big enough of a boat, it's actually a really scary lake. There's oh, yeah. a lot of currents in there. It's extremely cold. It's extremely deep. And if you don't know what you're doing, yeah. um, which I didn't at the time, we didn't, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up with a boat per se. Sure. Um, we went up to, you know, we went up to Canada and did those types of things, which, you know, we went every year, yeah. but, um, I didn't have a boat. I went with friends that did, but yeah, you can, you can get into big trouble <laughs> on a big lake like that in a hurry. If you don't know what you're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. That's, that's a little bit like Lake Michigan growing up in Chicago. Um, kind of similar. It's like, Oh, Lake Michigan. You must have, I mean, one Lake Michigan isn't the cleanest lake, <laughs> but also it's, it's massive <laughs> and it's, it can get a little, uh, a little dicey. Yeah. Yep. So it's, um, you know, I, I fish for Kamloops trout and, uh, fish the St. Louis river quite a bit too, for, for walleye. Okay. And they've got so many different species in there, yeah. but my, my grandpa actually had a cabin up on sort of the famed Lake Vermilion, um, up in Northern Minnesota, uh, kind of up by Orr and Ely and those types of places. So I, I spent a lot of time up there. Yeah, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, we'll get into this a lot more, uh, in a second here, but is this, I mean, we're in early, well, no, we're in late uh, late January right now. Um, I yep. know you guys have a, a little event coming up in February. Is this, is this kind <laughs> of a do. crazy time for you right now? Yeah. Work is nuts right now with national pheasant fest and quail classic, I think is what you're yeah. referring to. Yeah. Minneapolis convention center, February 17th to the 19th, kind of the super bowl of the uplands, if you will. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fun time and I always look forward to seeing people there, but yeah, it's really busy, you know, behind the, um, it's controlled chaos, I guess, behind the curtain, mm. everything normally goes, goes off just fine. Um, but there's, there's so many little things from, from speakers to all the different chapters that are coming, uh, to making sure, you know, you got the, the banquets and the fundraising and we got a lot of sponsors there and make sure everybody's taken care yeah. of. 
um, it's it's quite a big production. And then, you know, my job is to, to help make sure people are there on the advertising side. Yeah. So I get a little stressed out this time <laughs> of year, but, um, you know, that's why that's why uh, we love the outdoors and, and it's the best way. It's the best stress reliever to yeah. get outside and run the Absolutely, dogs. man. Absolutely. Well, I, I with all that said, I appreciate you jumping on and making some time uh, in this busy season yeah, you to uh, talk on the podcast. But um, I want to get to know you a little bit more. And I know we're going to talk more about um, Habitat, Pheasant Forever, uh, Pheasant Fest, all that good stuff. But um, so, so it sounds like you grew up in the outdoors. It sounds like you grew up in an awesome location just for outdoor recreation, hunting, all yep. that good stuff. Talk about like what was the turning point that got you into really upland hunting? And then, uh, yeah, just unpack that journey a little bit more. Yeah. So I credit my dad. I think a lot of people, their, their father, or their mom, or, or uncle, or whoever it might be, is is that's sort of their gateway to the outdoors. My my dad grew up. He was a huge outdoorsman. Um, he was raised in basically two harbors, Minnesota, for most of his life, and then he moved down to the Twin Cities, and then you know they moved back to Duluth um, as sort of a landing point for for where I grew up. So my my earliest memories are going going with him to rough grouse hunt. Well, I mean four, five, six years old. Okay. I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, used to go up to the uh, ELC, the Environmental Learning San- uh, Center wow. at, at Wolf Ridge in Minnesota. A lot of people are familiar with that. It's kind of a cool place. Kids kids like to grow to learn learn about the outdoors. But I basically learned everything from my father. And, and rough grouse was sort of my first taste of uh, the uplands or an upland bird, okay. if you will. I maybe you know, some people call them forest birds. I, I think they fall into the, the upland category sure. itself, but that's really where I grew up. And I didn't, I didn't have a, I was my own bird dog, right? I didn't, I didn't have one. We You'd had be surprised a, how many people say that. <laughs> They're like, I, I, I pointed yeah. the bird, I retrieved the bird. <laughs> yeah. It, and we had a Siberian Husky growing up, a wonderful dog named Tundra, uh, awesome dog, and uh, still still have pictures actually in the office here of, of back in the day with the Siberian Husky. But I really didn't get into bird dogs until after college, got married to my wife. Um, we've got, uh, you know, two two beautiful girls. I'm a girl dad. Nice, uh, nice. Love, love being that way. My, my kids come outdoors with me. We do some deer hunting together, some bird hunting together. Um, but didn't really get a dog until I moved, moved to Iowa. And, um, I was actually an intern for pheasants forever after college. And, uh, before that I I worked up in Alaska for a stint and, you know, did some cool things, but didn't really get into dogs until, uh, until we got married and moved down to Iowa where I worked for pheasants forever full time. Okay. Okay. So, so did you kind of always, always know you wanted, like, did you want to work in the outdoor space? It sounds like you interned pretty young. So when I was, I went to Luther college in Northeast Iowa, if anybody's familiar with that, go Norse. Um, <laughs> it's it. And when I went to college, um, I know I wanted to go to college someplace where I could get outdoors. Um, and Luther was high on my list. I also got recruited. Um, I was thinking about playing tennis at the, I was a tennis player, soccer player back in the day in high school, um, tennis big time and looked at maybe going to the University of Montana Bozeman, but they had a really good tennis team. And I just, I don't know if I would have actually played. So chose, chose a smaller school okay. um, and something with a lot of outdoor benefits to it. And if anybody's ever been to Northeast Iowa, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. Everything from, they do have a rough grouse population. They're not huge, <laughs> but they're there. Um, pheasants, turkeys, huge deer, lots of trout, um, great fishing, you know, to a degree. And, um, so that's where I went to school and I had originally gotten into exercise physiology. Um, my dad and our whole family, uh, until my father here 
uh, who's 70, he'll be 73 this year. Every male in our family has died from heart complications at 62. Hmm. And my dad actually had a heart attack at 62. Oh, I know geez. that's hard to believe, wow. but so that's sort of what got me into, yeah. listen, I want to, I want to be a guy that's going to help people figure out how heart rehabilitation, those types yeah, of yeah. things. Wow. Um, but halfway through college, I tell this story a lot, but I had my college schedule set up. So I only had class uh, junior and senior year, uh, Tuesday and Thursday all day from okay. like, you know, seven o'clock in the morning to whatever at night. I had Monday, Wednesday, Friday off. And you can probably, you can probably uh, figure out what I was doing some, some of those <laughs> days, some of it not yeah. good, but most, most of it. Most of it was hunting. Sure. Most of it was hunting the outdoors. Like I said, I was in my own bird dog in college, yeah. and that's where I really got into pheasant hunting was okay, in, in the, the hills around northeast okay. Iowa. Um, did a lot of deer hunting as well. Um, <laughs> actually, one thing I really haven't told people is, you know, senior year, um, senior year, we were having a big Halloween party uh -huh. at our house at our house one night. And, uh, I went out, uh, the day before I always like to hunt on ha Halloween or right around yeah. it. It's always a great deer hunting experience. And I shot one of the biggest bucks I've ever shot with my bow. And I actually hung it from the tree because <laughs> I needed a place to put it right. I hung it, Happy I hung Halloween. it from the tree. <laughs> Yeah, outside of our house, and there's a bunch of old people on this block, and then there's a bunch of like college people too. You know, yeah. people are coming up. They're like, "Where, where the hell, where the hell did you get that like deer costume or whatever that you're hanging from the tree?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's not a cop. It's, it's real." <laughs> you know, they're like, even the blood and everything looks real too. I'm like, uh, "That's because it yeah. is." You know, it's it's, it's hanging there. So <laughs> that was awesome. that was kind of my claim, claim to fame. Senior. Oh, year, I'm but, sure um, you're known for that, and you're yeah. That's that's how I really got, um, you know, into pheasant yeah. hunting. And, um, and then I decided, you know what, you need to do what you love for a career. So I got into environmental studies and sort of went on that track, uh, junior and senior year. I had a lot of biology classes. I first started with nursing, actually. I okay. wanted to be a nurse and it went to exercise physiology and then to, you know, you dummy, <laughs> like you're, you spend all your extra time yeah. outdoors. Yeah. That's what you want yeah, to yeah. do. So, and then shortly after college, went up to Alaska, uh, for about a year, worked up there, um, taking kids on camping trips and adults, kayaking, okay. fishing, those types of things really fell in love with the outdoors in a state like oh, that. I bet. That's, that's probably, um, yeah, incredible. And, and then came back and was just fortunate to get in an internship with pheasants forever unpaid for a year yeah. and just sort of worked my butt off asking for a chance. Yeah. And, um, you know, here I am Way now. To go, man. Good for you. Good. That's a, that's a, that's a fun story. Just sounds like yeah, you were destined thanks. for the, uh, for the outdoors and, and be working uh, in the space. So. Yeah, no, I'm cool. happy to, happy to be yeah, here. That's I feel, awesome. feel very fortunate. And then and last kind of thing, when did, so when did you pick up your first bird dog and then what led you down that path? You know, why'd you pick those, you know, those breeds? I know you got, you got two different breeds right now. Yep. Well, when we moved to Iowa, um, I wasn't, uh, we moved down there. I was driving a Honda element at first. The first thing I needed to do before a bird dog was get rid of that and get a truck for, <laughs> Hey, I for real quick, my, my brother had an element. Seats. Dude, those things were awesome. The seats fold up in the back to the side, right? In those elements? Yeah, awesome truck. Those are I awesome. don't want to revert back to college, but when we were like big into the deer season, yeah. right? We would shove like oh, you can load three, that four thing down. guys and there were hooves coming out at <laughs> every wind, every window. Right? Honda needs to bring and that thing back. Moon, yeah, the moon roof. <laughs> yeah. It was a beast, but I just needed, needed something different for working with volunteers mm -hmm. down there. So after the truck, um, really dove into a, the dog my first year. I think it was 2010. 
Um, I really wanted a Labrador retriever. I, I like to waterfall hunt. I like to upland hunt. I like to do shed hunt. I like to do sure. a lot of different things. And I just felt that the Labrador retriever was sort of, sort of, um, you know, my, my thing at the time. Yeah. So that's what we went with. Um, and then we sort of added Jackson to the pack, as I alluded to earlier, after my, my dad, uh, just couldn't have a bird dog. They were doing a lot of traveling sure. retirement, you know? So, um, that's when we added the, the English pointer to the pack. And unfortunately Coda, my first bird dog, she was a, she was a wonderful, wonderful dog. You know, everybody says you're once in a lifetime bird dog. Sure. She was that for me. Okay. Um, I just working through pheasants. This is your first lab you had, right? Okay. Yeah. First okay. lab. Yep. Working, working through pheasants forever and quill forever. And just being in that space and working with the DNR and working with a lot of chapter volunteers, I had the opportunity to get, get her on a lot of birds, sure. which in my opinion, I feel like that's what makes a dog, yeah. right? You, you can do all the training you want, but after, you know, getting them on, uh, wild birds or just birds in general, sure. I think is what makes a dog. Cause they, they tend to figure it yeah. out on their the, own. The wild birds while, are gonna, especially yeah, the, teach them so much quicker and, and, yeah. Yeah. Especially the flushers. Yeah. And so, um, she, she died when we moved back here. Um, she was eight years old. Uh, she had a tumor on her spleen that, that burst and basically mm. just about died in our house. Oh, it geez. was a, it was an ugly, ugly deal, mm. but, um, been through that before. And, um, I have a wonderful dog now named Luna from lucky buck kennels, KR buck, uh, out of Denison, Iowa. And, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I got into the, the bird dog world and yeah. haven't, haven't looked back. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's a different dynamic too, because you got the, the big running, you know, Ferrari in the pointer now and you got, got yeah, your, got yeah. your do it all lab. And <laughs> so that's a, thing. that's quite the toolbox. Yeah, it is. You know, and a lot of people ask me like, well, do you hunt them together? And the answer to that is no. Um, just, you know, the, the, the flusher pushes the, pushes the pointer to the, uh, you know, to the, to the brink of wanting to, um, I'd like to be, I'd like to say she's steady to shot or he's steady to shot and flush, but he's not. And, um, you know, so I I hunt them differently at different times a year. I use him a lot, especially early season, early season grouse, right. When first things start mm-hmm. to open up sure. and he's point pointing big broods that are out there. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of leaves yeah, up yeah. at that time. Um, so yeah, I switch them around. It's just hard to keep an eye on, you know, one dog works at 15 to 20 yards, the, the lab, the flusher yeah. and the other, other works at about 80 and is moving back and forth. Sure. And, um, I've, I've found it hard. Some people can do it, but I've found it hard to do it together to keep a line. I mean, on honestly, that's, them, yeah. that's kind of perfect though for, for, it sounds like from where you live, from what you hunt, like you have, have those two different dogs to do different things and you know if you want to take a big yeah. trip out west or things like that like you have that you know in your i found that it's a i've found that it's a major plus just depending on the species the time of year um you know those those types of things when we get into uh you know we get more into late season um i actually really like using the flusher a little bit more for all types of upland birds you know grouse they can basically see it coming if the pointer gets out too far they're a lot more tendency to flush there from what i've found in the places that i hunt sure. um you know pheasants and cattail sloughs is the same thing um i like having a close working bird dog at that point um and then uh but i still do break jackson out uh we were in montana a few weeks ago and he just had an awesome two-hour run mm. for being you know 11 years old That's and awesome. um pointing birds on the edge it's just uh everybody knows what i'm talking about you get a lot of bird dog owners that listen to this podcast and you know that feeling sure. when when you when you watch them lock down oh yeah nothing better 
Nothing better. Um, well, Jared, love to uh, dive a little bit more into uh, Pheasants Forever and some of the work you guys are doing there. Um, one thing I thought would be helpful, just for anyone maybe who has not heard of Pheasants Forever or, or doesn't really know some of the work that PF does, um, can you just kind of give us an, an overview of, of what is Pheasants Forever and what is some of the work that uh, you guys are doing there? Yeah, no problem. I, I would say, you know, when people ask me, like, explain pheasants forever, I, I like to tell people that we're the we're the nations or the world's foremost um, upland conservation group. Um, we control that space, both pheasants forever and quail forever, uh, working on two different birds. But we also go way outside of that for species that are impacted by the work that we do. So pollinator habitat, so monarch butterflies, you know, native honeybees, those types of things. Uh, we also work on sage grouse habitat quite a bit. Um, all the different grouse that are out there, sharp tails, uh, prairie, prairie chickens. We work, work in their range quite a bit as well, but you know, at pheasants forever, I think we've got a lot of different things we do and that's everything from land acquisitions to, uh, chapter led projects to, uh, education and outreach. That's, you know, learn to hunt, learn to shoot events. And we can get that uh, into that in a little bit, but, um, and a lot on not just land acquisitions themselves, like purchasing property sure. and then conveying it over to, you know, a DNR or the County, or the U S fish and wildlife service, but we work a ton on access. Mm. Um, anybody that's, you know, anybody that's been or hunted on a walk-in access property, some type of access program in a state, we work on a lot of them everywhere from, you know, Minnesota and South Dakota down through Kansas mm. and uh, corners, corners for conservation in Colorado yeah, that's where you pretty live. Popular. Uh, we're ex- extremely involved uh, with that, with that uh, particular program. And uh, it's grown by leaps and bounds and we continue to, to, to push the envelope if we will yeah. to, uh, to, to make more acres. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Can you unpack that a little bit more between the the land, like buying, purchasing land and the access? Are those two different things or are you buying land and then just open and rolling it to do access well, or to provide access? No, it's a, it's a little bit of both. So on the land acquisition side, um, we do, we do own some properties, um, and all those are open, open for public access for hunting. Uh, but the majority of our acres, I think are where we work with a partner. So mm-hmm. that would be a, a DNR or a County conservation board, U S fish and wildlife service, where, uh, we work with them ahead of time and say, Hey, you know, and it's, it's strategic, sure. right? Everything that we do, we just don't like, I've had hey, a lot let's of people buy this will piece of land randomly. Yeah. Email us like, Hey, I've got 40 acres here in the middle of nowhere. Do you guys want to <laughs> buy it? And the the answer is, the answer is no, we don't. Um, cause we try to, we try to make complexes, right? Sure. So everything that we do looks at existing public property on the landscapes, uh, existing easements that might be out there. We actually don't buy a lot of easements because those are already permanently protected. Mm. Um, you know, we don't, we don't need to protect those further. Um, but the properties that in, in between that create that connectivity, yeah. um, you know, will help purchase through, uh, chap, chapter, chapter money, which and member membership dollars, um, you know, in conjunction with grants and things like that and, uh, partners that are already mentioned. Yeah. Um, and you know, we purchase those properties, we make them, uh, the best that they can be for habitat. And then we convey them or, or donate them to, um, a, a public entity. Okay. Um, and that's different than your question that you're sure. asking, I think is that's different than, uh, there's, 
obviously there's access there, but we also work a lot on access programs. So Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have over 300 biologists throughout the country right now. Um, we have the second most biologists in the country. We're, we're second only to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, okay. and we might surpass them at some point. We just we have a lot of biologists, mm. and there's a ton of them that work on enrolling uh, access programs. So like um, if you've ever hunted Nebraska, um, like the Open Fields yeah, yeah. and Waters program, program. there, wonderful Wonderful, wonderful program. Um, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever administer that entire program. Payments, you know, helping sign up, sign up landowners oh, to enroll okay. in it. Um, so, so that's not totally, for, so that program, Open Fields and Water, for example, that's not solely run by the state. PF and QF is is pretty involved in managing that? Yeah, yep. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever basically m- manage that program um, in partnership okay. with Nebraska Game and Parks. Oh, wow. Uh, yep. Um, you know, the same could be said for people that go in and hunt, uh, crep or just walk in access in general in South Dakota, a lot of pheasants forever biologists are, are touching those programs. Um, I'm not sure if, have you hunted near, uh, you know, Aberdeen and, and that area? I, before, I have not Will? been up to South Dakota yet. No. Okay. So if you ever, you ever get out there, um, we've got the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition, it's called, okay. it's a community access program where um, one of our farm bill biologists, uh, one of our chapter leaders that we used to have, he's retired now, Emmett Lenahan, sort of came up with the idea of like, let's raise money in the community. So through hotels and mm. restaurants and those types of things that benefit from hunters coming in, let's match it with chapter dollars. So I think the, it was it was one to one, you know, 50,000 chapter dollars, 50,000 community dollars. And, uh, we use that, um, for what's called the pheasant, uh, the Aberdeen pheasant coalition. So we basically use that as an incentive payment to do two things, sign up new conservation reserve program acres, which is basically the Cadillac of pheasant habitat across this country. Um, and, Every single one of those acres had to be connected to walk and access. So it was an incentive payment for landowners to not only sign up new acres, but uh, connect it to, to public access. Oh, interesting. Um, and you say connect it, meaning like the property next door to this piece of land? Nope. Connected as in like you're going to, the person's going to sign up for CRP, but it also has to have, um, it also has to have public access on it. So gotcha. enrolled in either CREP or their walk-in access. Okay, so, so it couldn't just be private. It has to be open to the public. Yep, okay. so it's it's private land that's open to the public. Um, that's, you know, new CRP acres, which is great, expanding pheasant habitat. And then it's also got the public access side on it. So people can people can get in there to pheasant hunt. Been a very wonderful program, uh, over 5,000 wow. acres in the state of South Dakota right now, continues to expand. And where we're looking at taking that model and hopefully using it other places. So yeah. um, permanent permanent protection through land acquisition and then just access programs in general. We work on a lot of them uh, in a lot of different states. Yeah, uh, that's got to be tricky again because the program you just described in the Aberdeen area—that's that's very localized, right? Like it came out of kind of the community, kind of was birthed out yep. of that. And then, I mean, yep. states you're in—it's just got to be so tricky. Different programs and, and ways states run. Do you guys kind of just have to adapt they to do. the states, or do you bring ideas and say, "Hey, w- would you guys consider this Colorado or whatever it is"? Yeah, this specific one in Aberdeen that we just talked about, the Pheasant Coalition, that was an ab- 
that was an idea that we brought to the table. Okay. It's like, yeah, we want, we want to create more acres around here. Brown County in general, which is where Aberdeen is, has the most public land acres in the state. And uh, some of that uh, is due to the fact that, you know, we, we bring this, bring this new initiative and we'd like to expand it. We're talking about ideas to do it right now, but every single walk-in access program is, is a little bit different in how it works, what it pays and those types of things. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's an incentive for landowners to enroll private land, which, you know, creates the majority of wildlife populations in this country. Sure. Um, and opens it to public access, which is a wonderful thing. So, um, you know, when you talk, advocacy and what we do on our government side sure. that voluntary public access and habitat incentive program which basically funds all these walk-in programs mm -hmm. throughout the country is connected to the farm bill mm -hmm. so that's like that's a huge thing for us and we continue to work on that and try to get more money pumped into that program absolutely i mean that's that's awesome I, um back to the biologists real quick and you said you have a, a what did you say 300 biologists on staff probably around there yep okay that's yep. a lot yep. that's a lot of biologists what like what is it is. Can you describe that role a little bit more and are they state specific yeah you know a, a farm bill a farm bill wildlife biologist um they are pretty state specific and they also can get county specific as well oh, wow. um they exist to help landowners reach their land use goals so it's basically free or compl complementary um, habitat planning services that if, if you are a landowner in this country or you're an upland bird hunter, that's maybe going to buy a piece uh, of property, wherever it might be, sure. you know, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota. <laughs> I mean, we've got biologists all over the place that can help you plant. Like if you're, if you're saying like, I've got 40 acres and I want to turn it into a pheasant factory. And I just had this happen the other day, actually in, um, this was in Northeast Montana. A gentleman called us, said, hey, I've got 120 acres. Some of it's in hay right now. Uh, some of it's um, planted into wheat. Uh, and it, I've owned it for a year, you know, so he's eligible for some type of farm bill programs hmm. now. I want to make it a pheasant factory. Can you help sure. me? Um, and the answer to that is yes. We will send a private biologist out to meet with you on that property, discuss what you want to manage for. It could be pheasants, could be grouse, could be just wildlife in general. Mm -hmm. And we will come up with a conservation plan tailored to what their land use goals are. Wow, okay. Yep. And they help. Farm bill programs can be tricky from the aspect that like, there's a lot of paperwork and, you know, things you need to sign and those types of things. And our biologists help enroll properties and conservation programs, basically A to Z. Hmm. Um, they will help you throughout the process, not only plan it, uh, but help you implement it as well and, and set you up with resources. Could be, um, you know, something from the local NRCS or FSA office, or it could be connecting you with a, uh, some of our chapters do cost share programs to help landowners pay pay for seed and put put good quality habitat down um all those things and more a, a biologist can help uh help set up uh you know yeah vr farm bill biologist program that's that's a huge role man that's that's awesome um uh, you kind of teased this a, a little bit ago um on the whole you know pheasants and quail you know quail forever pheasants forever what else what other kind of work do you guys do you know for the prairie birds for the sharp-tailed grouse the sage grouse and are you doing similar things with the bio biologist or what's um, kind yeah, of involvement so i would say you know biologists come into a couple different fields. There's coordinating biologists, there's farm bill wildlife biologists. Um, we got a you know range in conservation biologists. We got folks that have a lot of different titles, but at the end of the day, um, a lot of the work they're doing is the same is to help, help private landowners and also plan out uh, 
projects on public lands. Um, so like in the sage grouse range, um, you know, there's different, different encroachment of trees and things like that, that, you know, when you get above a certain height, sage grouse, prairie chickens, whatever it might be, move sure. out. Um, we help to, you know, contract a lot of tree removal in places where historically it hasn't been, mm-hmm. um, but due to, you know, lack of fire in some of those places and, um, the, the buildup of fuel resources for the future that could have a catastrophic fire, mm-hmm. you know, we help deal with those types of things. Okay. Um, you know, up here in Minnesota, uh, we've got biologists that work in sharp tail areas to make sure they have that brushy con- component available, okay. um, you know, to them, to them when they need it. So there's a, a lot of different things that we do, um, you know, working, working on range lands and, you know, making sure that sagebrush habitat is there, if, you know, specific for a sage grouse, yeah. if you will. It is one step further on that is typically like, will is that you guys going to the states to lend support or are states reaching out to you to say, hey, like, what can you do to help support, you know, sage grouse in Wyoming or Colorado, whatever it might be? Yeah, I would I would say it's both. Um, you know, we we help fulfill fulfill that role by bringing matching dollars in to hire biologists to assist. In a lot of cases, there's a backlog of projects through throughout the nation for um, for concert conservation minded landowners, right? We just don't, don't have enough government staff available. So, um, we, we act as, um, sort of that connection, right? And I like to think of us as experts in the, in the field that we're working in. Um, so like when you, when you come to a, a lot of different offices, like I want to sign up for the conservation reserve program, CRP, they'll be like, well, you know, such and such is a pheasants forever biologist and that's their specialty. Hmm. That's what they work on day in and day out. So I look at us as specialists in our field related to, to upland bird habitat. Yeah. Um, and it, it goes beyond that too. There's places, um, there's places like Montana where we've actually got big game specialists now, but the, the, you know, the figure that you're working on. So in mule deer or antelope, uh, we're working on migration routes to make sure grasslands are intact throughout those mi- migration corridors. Mm-hmm. So in that case, like sharp-tailed grouse or, or 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 pheasants to some degree, we're impacting those birds and improving their habitat uh, through you know focusing on various different species, which I think is yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's not it's not just lasered and focused on oh we're just thinking about the pheasants. And, yeah, the yeah. the pheasant or the quail is like an umbrella, sure. an uh, umbrella, right? And everything that we do for them can impact these other species and vice versa. Yeah. Um, two more questions I just wrote down so I don't forget these. Um, can you unpack a little, yeah. as we're kind of talking about different species and, and habitat and all that, I think one of the things I know I have not talked about on this podcast really much of it all is, is kind of the, the pollinator aspect work that you guys do, butterflies, uh, bees, all that kind of stuff. Can you unpack that a little bit more? As, I think as we're kind of talking about, again, not just focusing on the pheasant itself or, you know what I'm saying? Yep. You know, the connection there, some people don't understand it, but great, great pollinator habitat is the best, uh, is the best broodering habitat that you can buy Mm. for pheasants or quail, Mm. you know, or sharp tails and those types of things. So that's a big connection there and why we started working on it. Um, it hasn't been that long, probably, probably 10 or 15 years now we've really gotten into it. Um, you know, the White House put out a pollinator action plan of a few years ago, uh, 
and it had a number of different steps in it. Like one thing you hear about is, is milkweed and the monarch butterfly, mm. right? There's not enough milkweed on the landscape right now. And, and that's one of the reasons why um, monarch butterfly populations have gone down. Well, one of Pheasants Forever's goals was to establish more than a billion milkweed stems um, as as part of that wow. pollinator action plan, and we we achieved that. We put you know we put uh, milkweed, not just common milkweed, but all sorts of different milkweeds, and all of the different mixes that we do wow. because we know it has such a huge impact on some of those species, not just monarch butterflies, but um, you know honeybees and those types sure. of things as well. And with that, it brings huge bug production. Mm. And with that, bring something for pheasant and quail and other upland bird chicks to eat, which is 100% of their diet for like the first three months of life. And that's sort of that connection. Yeah. And it's not something people, I think, typically would would think about. It's like, oh, well, you know, you hear people grumble, why are there no bugs? Or why why is this land not, (laughs) you know? Yep. Yep. And that's, you know... When you look at some of the different programs out there, CRP um, and other programs in general, like um, the mixes that we put out on the landscape have really changed. They used to be just heavy, heavy grass mixes with a couple different species in there. And you look at a lot of the programs um, have sort of changed over time where they're a lot more forb heavy. Mm. So flowering plants that attract insects, mm. which again is great for sure. all the things that, that upland hunters care about yeah. uh, and, you know, birds and broods specifically. Um, but, uh, it, it, it also is just, uh, it's a, it's a catalyst for, for all those different species. And we know that as, as management goes for grasslands, um, you can plant as many forbs as you want. Eventually grass is going to catch up to that and try to take over. Mm-hmm. And that's why we work a lot on the management side too. Um, you know, we've got strike teams and prescribed burn associations mm-hmm. and a lot of different States now focusing on, um, having a grassland is great. having a prairie is great, but if you don't manage it over time, you know, trees move in as succession goes, you're going to, you're going to lose, uh, you're, you're going to lose your best uh, habitat that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I wanted to unpack a little bit more, I know I was talking with um, you and your team a little bit about this a little bit more. It's, it's kind of like the winter survival and the winter food um, for upland birds. Um, yep. So this might be a, a landowner that's maybe the, they're reaching out to you. Hey, what can I do for my my property, my land? Um, I know you mentioned in Minnesota, you got you know a couple feet of snow up there. So this, mm-hmm. this winter time for these birds, like what are, what are some things land, landowners can do? And can you talk a little bit more about the winter, I guess a winter f- feeding support that, that Pheasants Forever can, can help landowners with? Yep. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. I think anytime the snow really builds up, uh, this, this isn't a very typical winter for us. Um, and when I say for us, I mean, in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, we haven't had this much snow this early on in a really long time. And it can pose problems for upland birds, specifically when um, we did have some warmer tempers in January, which is great. The birds can get out. um, They can look for food and those types of things. But anytime you have, you know, rain and sleet and Mm -hmm. ice followed by 10, 12 inches of heavy, wet snow at a time, followed by blizzard like conditions where where doesn't where, sound pretty honestly no it's not it's not i mean there's like pictures of you know mule deer up against a fence can't see where they're going yeah. and dying yeah. and it's like you know if mule deer are passing away <laughs> the, the the pheasants are taking yeah, it hard a red, too red flag. but 
and I don't want to paint it too gloom and doom, but anytime you have those specific set of circumstances followed by blizzards and really cold temperatures for four days, the snow stacks up um, big time sure. and it, it's harder for an upland bird. I mean, they're not, they're not turkeys or deer. They can, they can dig down, but it, it makes it harder for them to survive. But with native food sources and other things out there, um, the pheasant didn't make it this far by you know, sure. by just keep just just keeling over when something bad happens. Yeah. So um, they're, they're pretty, they are, pretty resilient. Well, <laughs> birds—they're a resilient bird. Um, they they are meant for high turnover. Yeah. Like that's how Mother Nature designed sure. them. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think winter weather and feeding—it's people get reactionary, right? Mm-hmm. You get hunters that care about the resource. You get landowners that care about the bird and are like, "Well, I see a lot of them on the road, so I'm going to go dump some corn along there." Mm-hmm. I just I just wrote a big article the other day about feeding and the why not to do it. Hmm. And here's a great example is in Southwest Minnesota. The other day I had a snowplow driver call me and talked about how, you know, people, well-intentioned folks are trying to put, you know, feed out on the road <laughs> and those types of things. And the snowplow is hitting them along his 30 mile route oh. or covering them, covering them with 10 inches yeah. of, you know, wet slushy oh, snow. Geez. In addition to that, Feeding represents a, a, a couple of a, a couple of uh, bad scenarios for pheasants. It pulls them away from winter cover, which is number one. Like as long as they have quality winter cover, sure. um, and they're out of out of the elements, you know, freezing is a is a lot bigger issue than starving. Mm. I mean, they just they have so many different things that they can eat from, sure. uh, not just corn and beans, but but native sources um, too. Um, so it, it pulls them out of winter cover. Uh, it provides sort of a it's a predator trap. Mm. Like predators know, like hey, they're coming to this pile of corn like, that you put like over wide here. open space yeah pull them away from that wide open yep wide open space you're pulling them into you know you can pull them really long distances um they become accustomed to that so like when it gets really cold like we're about to experience here uh in the upper great plains midwest i mean we got two weeks coming of below zero temperatures yeah. and you know if you if you're not if you've got them accustomed to coming to feed and you don't keep up with it um you're setting them up for a a really bad scenario, mm. a really bad scenario. Then, and the last one would be just disease in general. Everybody's heard about, you know, avian flu and oh, what sure, it's done sure. to domestic poultry and waterfall. A lot of waterfall have passed away from yeah. it. Um, you know, that's a, that's a disease that can, that can jump over to upland birds as well. Sure. There were a couple in, I think in the state of New York that they found that have died, but for the most part, you know, those birds like to stay spread out on the landscape in a, a feed pile, um, you know, concentrates them. And, yeah. CWD is another one, you know, mm. chronic wasting in deer. There's a lot of places, Minnesota, Wisconsin, yeah. wherever else, where it's illegal to do that in a lot of places. And we would never <laughs> tell somebody right. to, to, to do something in that regard. Absolutely. So. so, so as far as like landowners go, then are there things that they can do throughout the year that, that provides better winter food source at all? Or is it really just cover and the yep. birds will figure out the food? Yep. No, um, cover, cover and food can help, I think to a degree, but it's, it's how you, it's how you set it up. It's how it's planned, right? Winter cover is not made easily. Um, you know, stiff stem grasses like switch grass and, and those types of things, uh, can be, can be good, but they can only handle the, the weight of so much heavy, wet snow. Um, so this, what we're seeing right now is birds moving into woody cover. Mm-hmm. So that's things like shelter belts. And, uh, but we, like we tell people is if you're going to design one of those, you know, do it on the prevailing side of the wind, which in a lot of cases is West and North. Okay. Right. And, you need to plant enough of it. So heavy woody cover, 
15 rows minimum, especially for places that are further north, mm. can winter a lot of wildlife, including upland birds. Okay. And that's everything from you know, dogwoods and plum, plum thickets. Oh, wow. uh, we like to focus on shrubs, evergreens on the outside and then shrubs on the inside, okay. staying away from, you know, try, trying to go more short stature instead of the really tall stuff. Okay. Cause at that point it's just inviting to, to avian predators. If you can do that, put the bedroom, if you will, <laughs> the bedroom would be that quality thermal sure. cover next to the kitchen, which is a food source. It could be an agricultural field that's existing there. Okay. Or if you, if you, it's too late to help them right now with, right. you know, piles of cracked corn. Sure. But if you, if you want to do a planned, like wonderfully planned habitat project, yeah. it comes down to habitat, right? Sure. That's a, three minimum three acre food plot that's going to sustain wildlife through throughout the winter season right next to that dang that's i mean it sounds like paradise (laughs) um yeah it 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 is for an yeah i mean and for a hunter honestly (laughs) (laughs) no it's public access um i was gonna ask with uh, something like a project like that say someone wants to yeah like i want to create this you know little paradise is that like a Mm. gosh is that a 15 year like plan like planning like a little you know, shelter belts and, and shrubs and all that. Is that a long, long-term plan or is that something someone could accomplish in a few years? Um, I think it depends what size, you know, shrubs and different things you're putting in. They, they come in, obviously the price goes up, mm-hmm. right. As more mature things to put in, but, um, yeah. And that's why we tell people like, if you want to plan for the next huge, uh, you know, winter storm system down the road, hopefully we have some more average winters with, with less snow and less, blizzards and storms but if you want to plan for down the road you need to start planning now Mm. and it's not uh it's not something that you can you can just plant one year and say hey i've I've done it these things yeah quality quality wildlife habitat is an ever-evolving process and it takes time um, specifically for those types of projects because you have to let them grow you know you get you get anywhere from, I think, three, four to 10 years down the line, especially with um, some of our native shrubs that can grow really, really fast. Um, I think you'd be surprised at, at what you can accomplish in, in that amount of time. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. It's not like I'm going to plan it one year and it's ready the next right. year. Um, More of a long-term the, strategy. Yeah, it's a long-term strategy that you have to plan for. And if you if you aren't planning for it, um, what I like to tell people is, is that we we plan for the worst and hope for the best. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that comes from, and I, I didn't come up with that. That comes <laughs> from a landowner, a good friend of mine named Eric Johansson, who's going to be speaking at Pheasant Fest about how he has one of probably the highest, highest, um, bird populations, wild bird mm. populations in the country. Um, because it, it, it's active planning mm. and, uh, you know, support farming for wildlife is really what it is. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you, and we touched on this again briefly, but Corners for Conservation, is that, can you expand on that program a little bit? Because that's that's separate than CR, the CRP program and all that kind of stuff, right? Yep, 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 for sure. So Corners for Conservation, there's also Corners for Wildlife in places like Kansas um, and Nebraska, but Colorado specifically is Corners for Conservation. It's a partnership um, it's a partnership between the the state agency. Is it Colorado Parks and Wildlife now? Mm-hmm. I know they changed their name. Yeah. Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Uh, I think the Mule Deer Foundation or Mealy Fanatics, uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. And then we've got some uh, corporate partners that help uh, put into, um, Hayden outdoors is a, is a real, is a real estate company that's, uh, you know, has been a, um, 
corporate sponsor of ours for a long time. And, uh, a lot of every sale, they, you know, pump money into corners programs oh, awesome. and things like that. Yeah. Which, which helps us move farther. So that basically, um, installs quality habitat on, on the corners of pivot circles, mm-hmm. which there's a lot of them, especially in, in yeah. Northeast Colorado. Um, and that's where the majority of the program is. And it helps, uh, you know, pay for quality seed and it connects it to public access. Each one of those, um, each one of those is, is open to access for corners that are rolled in corners for conservation. And it's awesome. Cause that, produces, that opens up, produces wild. Yeah. That opens up a lot of, a lot of opportunity. Cause you got four, typically four corners. <laughs> you're going to be on a, around a pivot. Yep. Um, yep. and when it's quality habitat, that, that can provide some really, really good opportunity for the public. Do you remember, I can't put my finger on it. I want to say it's, is it seven acres per corner? Something like that. It, it, it adds up quick oh, it does. and it, you know, help helps create connectivity. Yeah. And, um, yeah, those corners are, are typically, um, when we plan them, it's a, it's a really quality, diverse wildlife mix that goes yeah. in there. And it's, it's good for, you know, birds the, and bees the and best, poll- pollinators. The best thing is when you get four corners that all meet together from different, different yep. circles and you just hit that thing and that's, yep. that can produce some, uh, some good, good fe- pheasant in there. Yep. Yeah. It's a wonderful program and something we continue to build on. That's awesome, man. Well, a couple more things. Um, I'd love to ask you as we, uh, we continue on here, but, um, I, I know, uh, gosh, this is probably a year ago, call the uplands that pheasants, uh, forever started talking yep. about. Um, I thought it'd be fun. Like, do you have any kind of updates on where we stand with, with, uh, the call of the uplands? Can you give a brief overview and just kind of any updates that you can share with that, uh, incentive? Yeah. Yeah. No, no problem. Or initiative, not, not incentive, on... sorry, in- initiative. <laughs> Not an incentive. <laughs> They're still working on some of the some of the final numbers for the campaign, but um, you know, call call the Uplands is a national campaign uh, that we came at started five years ago. It's actually gonna it's actually gonna come to a culmination here in sunset at uh, National Pheasant mm-hmm. Fest and Quail Classic on February seventeenth through the nineteenth, particularly uh, the Saturday night banquet. Um, but it's it's been sort of our call that the the grasslands the grasslands need help, and I would say that you know, call the uplands in general, the campaign is just uniquely pheasants forever. We've had a lot of individuals, members, donors, corporate sponsors set up. Um, I don't have the overall, uh, we were trying to raise $500 million. I don't know where that sits right now. I think they're kind of counting what, what the final number is going to be. Um, but I know we were aiming for 9 million acres and that's everything from land acquisitions, easements, chapter projects, farm bill biologists, mm. acres, all those things combined. Yeah. We we're aiming for 9 million acres. And I, I know we've, we've, uh, we've gone over that. And I think right. we're actually, actually over 10. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yep. 10 million acres in this, this last year, 2022, uh, we did two, 2.4 million acres total. Wow. In, um, and when you, when you say acre, when you're talking about acres, is that opening up new acres or is that working on working on acquiring that's that's everything together that's acquiring new acres that's public access that's working working with private landowners um and you know putting acres on on privately owned ground it's everything sort of sort of balled up that's incredible yep um a couple of the you know Education and outreach, the R3 side was part of that. Um, you know, the uh, public public land protection and just acres in general was a part of that. I've, I've got a couple things that I can share um, that uh, I know are, are going to be um, as part of Pheasant Fest. So okay. uh, collective, and this is, this is more 
dates back to 2022, sure. but collect- collectively in 2022, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever hosted uh, darn near 2,000 events. Um, and that opened the gates for just under 107,000 participants to basically wow. find their path to the uplands. Wow. So that's that's learn to shoot, learn to hunt events. I was going to say, um, these are 2,000 education events, right? Yeah, 2,000 education wow. events. That's incredible. Um, yeah, which I think is awesome. It really speaks to the, you know, recruit, retain, reactivate yeah. the, the R3 and and sort of our educational events. That, and we continue to build. We've got some great new ones coming out. Um you know, as included in that would be women on the wing. Um, we've got, uh, we've women on the wing, obviously, uh, points towards female conservationists and female hunters. Um, and, uh, in 2022, uh, we had almost 1500 participants across 22 states, um, for, for women on the wing events. It's one of the fastest growing demographics right now. And we've got, uh, I believe it's 12 women on the wing chapters throughout the country. Um, and continue to build on that as well, which, which I think is. And and those chapters, are those in addition to the local other, uh, your standard pheasant chapter? Yep. Yep. Women on, women on the wing chapters are just, um, they're just a designated pheasants forever, quail forever chapter. That's women on the wing. Most of them, most of them are ran, uh, just, uh, by, um, females in general. Um, and it's a, it's a great way. And some of those events too are in conjunction with like existing pheasants forever and quail forever chapters who, who see the, uh, who see that addition in their own communities. Like, man, there's a lot of women coming into the upland space Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just uplands. Um, I think it's hunting in general. It's a huge demographic, a huge demographic and something that, uh, we continue to continue to grow, uh, by leaps and bounds. That's super cool. With some of the R three stuff, um, again, whether it's whoever it is, adults, kids, whoever it is, are, are those things like how do people hear about those? How do they know where to find those events uh, if they're interested? Because those are, I think those are some really really cool opportunities for someone to whether it's a shooting event like you said or um, some kind of ed- outdoor education that that Pheasants Forever is putting on. Yeah, I think there's two main ways people can find out about those events. Um, number one would be to check our event calendar. If you go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org, uh, right in the middle of the page, um, you'll see sort of an a, a event calendar that you can click on. Um, and that's got lists from every single state and things that are going on. And we do our best to make sure that that's updated all the time. Um, but the other way would be to just check with your local chapter. Um, there's a local chapter um finder map that is in the middle of the page as well at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. And you can click on that, put in your zip code, um, contact information will pop up for your local chapter and you can reach out to them to see, Hey, do you guys have any, uh, R3 events, uh, either for, you know, learn to hunt or learn to shoot events, uh, both for, you know, youth or adult onset hunters is a big one for us right Mm. now. Um, when you look at the pandemic and what happened there, there's a lot of people that, that, that look to the outdoors, um, honestly, to maintain, maintain their sanity, yeah, maintain their quality of life. Yeah. Um, and we really, really grew leaps and bounds. I think there as well, um, with adult onset hunters and the locavore movement, like people want to know where their, their food was coming sure. from during, during that time. Yeah. So I think it was a big, uh, it was a big boost to, to our three throughout the country. Yeah. That's super cool, man. I love that. Um, all right. So, We've talked about Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up here. Um, give us kind of a preview. I know we're, we're a few weeks away from it. Give us a preview. What What's this event going to hold? Why should someone attend this event um, if they haven't decided to already? 
Yeah, it's really, I've said it, I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's really the Super Bowl, of the Uplands, you know, uh, Upland hunters, bird dogs, uh, shotgun, best trainers in the world. Uh, our biologists are going to be there to create a, you know, conservation plan. If you're, if you're looking to looking to make one for your property, mm. um, it's, it's really a celebration of the Uplands in general. Um, and it's a trade show, but it's a lot more than that. It combines sort of a, a seminar series. So you've got, um, I'll just kind of go through it. It kicks off with the bird dog parade, which is sort of our claim to fame. We've got 40 different breeds, over 100 dogs that sort of parade through the event center. That's on Friday, February 17th, uh, starting at 11 o'clock a.m. Real, it's, real it's, quick, it's, so sorry to cut you off. Is that just yeah. chaos? Is that just like a mad yeah. madhouse? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's dogs. fun. There's a lot of lot of. A lot of kids, families there, and, and anybody knows Bob St. Pierre, who's actually my sure. boss. He's sort of the the voice of the bird dog parade. <laughs> and uh, this year, our, our grand marshal for it is uh, Travis Frank uh, with his oh, dog nice. Daisy. Okay. I think a lot, a lot of people know Travis sure. from uh, the, our show, the 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 flush that we sponsor. Um, so yeah, it is complete chaos, <laughs> but that opens up the show. It takes about an hour. <clears throat> yeah, we talk about all the different breeds. And then that really just kicks off the show and things get started. So there's a number of different stages that people can check out and I'll just list them briefly. You got the bird dog stage, everything from, you know, how do you get your, how do you get your dog out of a trap to the best trainers in the country? Um, you know, working with flushers and pointers. Um, we've also got uh, bird dog trauma this year. Mm -hmm. There's an ind individual event you can sign up for if you want to learn more about that from, from green berets in the U S army, which I think is pretty oh, wow. cool. Um, Path to the Upland stage. If you're interested in R3, interested in the outdoors in general, bird hunting in general, want to figure out how to get into it, maybe find a mentor. Path to the Uplands is a great place to do that. Youth Village, um, always a big hit for families. You can go there. They got a BB gun range, archery range, uh, seminars for the kids. Um, one of the ones that we always bring in is uh, is like a falconry seminar. Oh, cool! It's pretty cool. They they bring in a lot of cool Upland bird, oh, or, um, yeah. birds of prey that's rather cool. for people to see. Uh, habitat help desk. Like I said, if you want help planning out habitat projects on your property, uh, we have outstanding biologists that are available that'll sit down with you and pull up a Google earth view mm. and, uh, you know, move forward there and, and get you, get you planned out. Um, pollinator pathway, the main stage this year, which is sort of my baby. Um, and that's anything from the rest of the show floor shuts down for an hour or the other stages rather. Sure. And, uh, we've got a couple different things on there. Everything from a farm bill forum to talk about, you know, the 2023 farm bill is getting re reauthorized here, restructured, sure. huge opportunity to create birds and wildlife and public access, uh, to the U S fish and wildlife service leadership forum. There's a lot of people, uh, probably a lot of listeners that follow you that, you know, hunt waterfall production areas sure. or ref refuges to some degree when they're open. Um, we've got uh, a couple of, couple of key players on that side of things coming and we're going to talk about management of those, um, you know, why they don't do food plots on them. Why is there grazing on some of those mm. and, and sort of try to map that out for folks, which I think is going to be fun. So wow. that's a lot going on. Yeah, there's a lot of different yeah. things. And in addition to that, there's, you know, 400 unique vendors, everything from mom and pop stores to dog breeders. If you're looking for a dog, it's it's one of the best places to come oh, to and, and get some uh, get some professional advice. Yeah, that sounds so cool, man. That's it, yeah. Sounds like an incredible event. Sounds like you have a ton of um, I mean, different pieces from those stages that pe people can if they're interested, like you said, in R3 or Habitat or whatever it might be. Um, I think mm -hmm. you're offering some really, uh, some really cool opportunities for people. 
for listeners that want to come, uh, we actually have a um, we have a complimentary code that can get you a couple couple passes for for you and your family. Oh, so sweet. if anybody's interested in that, you can just reach reach out to me at jwickland at pheasantsforever.org. Oh, or my number is awesome. all over our website. All right. Check it out and be happy to help out. That's great, man. All right, people, you heard it here. Email email Jared if you want to. Yeah, if you want to yeah, attend. Ha- happy to help. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks happy for doing that. Um, well, you Jared, this has been a blast, man. I just have a couple uh, closing questions for you. Um, a couple things I, I like yeah. to ask every guest as we uh, we exit the uh, the show. So, um, piece of advice that you would give a new hunter out there, um, someone who's, who's maybe just getting into upland hunting, um, maybe they they picked up their first dog. Um, what's a piece of advice you would share with them? Um, anybody that's just getting into it, I think is, is find a mentor and, you know, pheasants forever and quail forever, obviously here's here to help. Um, you've got different groups out there, dog training groups like NAVDA and other places like that, but finding a mentor I think can be, um, can be, can be overwhelming for people sometimes, um, or scary. And I would just ask that, you know, you need help finding a mentor to get into the uplands, um, you know, re- reach out to groups like this, reach out to myself. Um, I was lucky in that I had a, a, a father figure that got, got me into it, sure. but I've had a lot of help along the way from people that are a lot more knowledgeable about things, uh, than I am in the outdoors. So sure. I think finding a mentor is a, a, a huge deal. Yeah, that, that's, that's huge, man. And I think you said this, but just to kind of reiterate, like, I think you have to be, you have to take that risk and like ask too. you have to reach out to someone, reach out to an organization, like extend that, um, like yep. you can't just like wait for it to happen to you. The olive branch. Yeah. Like you have to, you have to kind of make that aspect <laughs> yeah. of the phone, send an email. Um, cause that's, that's, yep, that's going to happen. Important. It is. Well, awesome. Um, a couple of rapid fire round questions and we'll, uh, we'll close this yep. thing out. So a couple questions for you and, uh, you can just give me your, your off the cuff answer and, uh, we'll bring this thing home. All right. Sounds good. First for you, uh, what came first, the dog, mm-hmm. the gun or the bird? I'd say the bird, like I said, I mean, growing up with growing up in the Superior National Forest or right on the edge of it, um, my dad took me at a really young age and got me exposed to, to bird hunting through, through rough grouse. So I, I'd, I'd say the bird is what came, came first for me is really what I fell in love with to begin with. All right. All right. Love it. Uh, what gun are you carrying into the field and why? I use a Ruger red label 12 gauge and I use that for quail, obviously neck down loads a little <laughs> bit through federal, federal, great conservation partner. Um, but yeah, I use a Ruger red label. Um, it's a beast of a gun. It does weigh a little bit, but it's got relatively not many moving parts on <laughs> sure. it. Um, it's extremely reliable. Never had a misfire with it before. I've been using it a lot of years now awesome. and I'm not, I'm not sure I'll ever go away from yeah. it. And you know, you get you get a bear charging you or something. That thing, <laughs> that thing's built it's like a brick. Uh, you know what? You can turn turn around I'm and sure. let, let them let them have it with just that in, with the just in uh, case. the way it's built. That's all. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with the with the Ruger Red Label. Is that a, a break open gun or is that something? Yep. Over okay. Under. Okay. Yep. Very cool, man. Love it. Um, favorite breed of dog besides the ones you own. You know, I got asked this question on uh, with Ronnie Bame and the Hunting Dog Podcast a few weeks back. Oh, did he steal my question? <laughs> he stole. Yeah, Ron he stole your Bame. question. Come on, man. I've only hunted with him a few few times, but um, and you know, my with a dog that's going to be you know a veteran bird dog here that's sort of in his twilight years, and I don't know how long he's going to be around. Good shape now, but the you know the English pointer sure. might be gone. I would say. The, the Nova Scotia duck tollers, I've hunted oh, with two of them. Okay. 
uh, in my lifetime. Um, do they get a lot of burrs? Absolutely. <laughs> they, you, you have to comb the hell out of those oh, dogs sure. in order to, yeah, but, uh, I, you know, I had a lot of people reach out from this other podcast, like, yeah. Hey, I heard you mentioned, yeah. you know, Nova Scotia duck tollers. They're awesome family dogs, yeah. awesome hunters. Um, I think they're cool looking and I'd, I'd like to have one of those. That my is next cool. Dog, to be totally honest. That is really cool. Yeah. Would you, have you hunted upland over them or just waterfall or both? Uh, both. Okay. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yep. I, I do not know yeah, much both. about them. I've, I've seen pictures of them and that, but they, I mean, they look like a cool dog for sure. Yeah. They're small enough. Uh, one of the listeners told me they're small enough that you can sort of pick them up and pick them up sure. under your arm, right. Yeah, yeah. And bring them places. That's and awesome. there's something to be said for that, especially when you're traveling or, yeah. uh, people are taking care of your dogs, that type yeah. of thing when you're gone. So the, yeah, that's one cool. of the reasons I, I love the Britney's just kind of, yeah, 35, 40 pound dog, <laughs> just whoop, pick them up and let's go. Yep. For sure. Um, all right. A couple more here. Um, favorite, oh, no, uh, one bird you have not hunted yet, but want to. Um, the devil bird chucker. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I've, I've had on a wild chucker and that's high on my list. Okay. okay. High on my list. Right. Yep. That's um, same, same here. Uh, favorite bird to hunt and why? I think just growing up with it is a rough grouse, okay. um, sort of the, the places where they live. Um, I think it's just my, uh, the history that I have with him. So rough grouse one pheasants are a close second. Okay. All right. Just some pretty cool places throughout the country, including Colorado, which I've never hunted out there. All right. So well, come on out, man. You know, <laughs> get to, maybe yeah. get you on some bluegrass. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. It was too. fun. It was fun. Spring some can of oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and working at pheasants forever, you don't have to say pheasants is your favorite bird. It's not like a requirement. No, I, I don't think okay. so. I, there, I'm not going to get you fired. Am I? No, okay. no. If they, if they fire, fire me for that, I'm going to court. Um, there's a lot of people that work for us. A lot of big time bird dog owners and hunters, you know, I think it's across the board, you know, pheasants, pheasants and the habitat that they represent is is good for all the other birds that we sure. like to chase but there's people that you know i think rough grouse i think my boss would say rough grouse too bob st pierre he's from the up of michigan okay okay like, so you're good you're that, covered you know but there's other people uh sharp-tailed grouse there's that allure to them or they have that allure to them which i think is pretty cool yeah. and i shot a few this year as well and um yeah there's just there's there's neat birds out there what i hear all the time is like you know, pheasants, like they're an, they're, they're an invasive species. Like they're not an invasive species. They're, they're, they're non-native yeah. and they've become an icon, mm. um, of the, of the Midwest and the great plains regions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, all right, two more, uh, your go-to hunting snack or go-to snack on a hunting trip. Go-to hunting snack. Um, oatmeal, oatmeal cream pies. Oh, Okay. Just grab a couple of those if guys. You're for, if you're familiar with those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had probably a couple yeah. of my life. Dogs really like them. Um, but <laughs> Versatile. The, the oatmeal cream pies, yeah, they they come in uh, obviously just a, just a long yeah. box that you can just throw in the back. And when you're, when you're hungry, yeah. uh, you can tuck a few into your vests and when it's really hot, they might, you know, might melt a little bit or whatever, <laughs> but um, they come in packaging. So yeah, oatmeal cream pies, I think are the are my number. I like it. I like it. And then beverage of choice after a hunt. Um, we'll go with sort of homegrown. Um, are you familiar with Castle Danger Cream Ale? I, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> Ca Castle Danger Brewery no, out of I, Two Harbors, I am not. Minnesota, makes a cream ale. If you've never tried it before, okay. um, 
visit your visit your your local yeah. uh, visit your local store and try one. Okay. They're they're delicious. Yep. I'm not a huge uh, I'm not a huge beer guy, but I can. I can you, have a couple. You look forward to one of those. It sounds like for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. sounds good, man. Yeah. We'll have to try that. I, I need to make a list of all all these recommendations I, I've heard from these questions. I'm like, I need to make a list of of all these someday. You know, there's one more. I think there's one more that uh, you asked me before the podcast. Oh, it was piece piece of gear. Oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So. Uh, I, I do have a piece of gear that I bring with me and people might find this weird because yeah. a lot of people are like, well, my, you know, my GPS and keeping track of the dogs and all that stuff is sure. important. But the piece of gear that I really recommend to people is packable waders. You ever heard of those? Packable waders. Uh, explain on that. Okay. So packable waders, uh, I think Hodgman and there's some other, um, there's some other companies that make them, okay. but packable waders, like they're pretty flimsy, right? Like sure. you aren't going to wear them like walking through an actual field, but to, to get to places where other upland hunters are not willing to go oh. packable waders, basically they're, they're, they're pretty large. They have a big, they're meant to just go straight over, over your, your, straight yeah, over yeah. your boots okay. and over your leg. And you put them on, obviously go up to go up their hip waders sure. basically. Um, and, um, or weight, waist waders, hip waders. Okay. Anyway, yeah. they just go up, they go up, yeah. They go up to your waist. Interesting. And, um, so you're throwing those in your in your vest and just. Yeah, they're extremely light, okay. and like you see a bunch of birds, you know, exiting a parcel, going yeah. over to across a running stream or something like that. That's wide okay. or deep or whatever. That packable waiter, I carry them with me everywhere. Really? Okay. And it saved my bacon a couple times, and it's also produced some really good hunts for Heck me. Heck yeah, so man! That would be that's my, a pro tip right there. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome man that's awesome well jared uh this has been a blast man thank you uh thanks for just un- kind of unpacking more of the work that you're doing thank with, you. uh, with pheasants forever and um i think uh you know the pheasant fest and quail classic coming up is going to be uh one heck of an event so i hope people come out for it again if people need tickets it's j-w-i-k-l-u-n-d at pheasants org, uh or you can call my cell phone it's all over our website but uh the last thing i would say if, if you know if you're not a pheasants forever quail forever member um and you want to get involved take the leap mm-hmm. um this is a this is a bottom-up organization not a top-down and even though we've grown uh by you know a uh, pretty big presence especially with number of staff and things that we have Local control is still a hundred percent. You have the ability to get into a chapter. Like I, I get it every once in a while. Like, hey, you guys aren't you guys aren't doing anything for birds in this specific region. Mm. It it's bottom up. Mm. Like it starts with chapters, sure. um, and that's where that's where it begins. So like you want to do something great and for, uh, and show that passion for for birds or wildlife habitat or public access in your region. Mm you can start a pheasants forever quail forever chapter wherever um even if they don't exist around there and you can build from there and get some momentum make make the most of it yeah yep that's incredible that's incredible man and uh yeah i mean membership i mean i know you got different tiers of membership i mean it's like minimums of what like 40 50 bucks only 35 35 35 bucks bucks. Yep, five magazines uh connected to a local chapter if one exists but again like grasslands um grasslands are challenged right now with the climate climate that we have uh in the world uh in north america here trying to feed the world there's a lot of things that can are going against grassland habitat right now but at the end of the day 
there's room on on every on every farm and ranch in America for for good wildlife habitat, mm. and we want to continue to add public lands, and that's a big place where chapters can insert themselves. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, Jared, yep. thank you again. This has been a blast, and Thanks, uh, Will. yeah, we'll be uh, I'm hopefully talking to you soon. Sounds good. Have a good you day. Too. Well, that is a wrap of episode 75 with Jared Wicklin from Pheasants Forever. Uh, Jared, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, really breaking down some of the, um, I think, incredible things that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are doing uh, to improve upland bird habitat across this country. Um, Some of the work is just way larger than I even have realized. And um, I know public land hunting is hands down my favorite kind of hunting to do um and so thank you guys for your work that you are putting in continuously uh, to improving uh, upland bird habitat hey guys uh don't forget leave a rating and review if you haven't already on apple Podcasts or spotify it would really really mean a lot i uh, help the show keep growing and get out there to more hunters uh, more outdoor lovers bird uh, dog lovers just like you um and then yeah share it with a friend share it with someone who maybe uh is just getting into upland hunting maybe someone who's been doing it forever uh, maybe an episode or two uh, would inspire them would encourage them in some way or another well until then Go put some miles on those boots and follow your favorite bird dog. Take care, and maybe I'll see you at Pheasants Forever in Quail Classic.